Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hi, Paul. How's your week been? My week has been pretty good. Paying down some technical debt and cursing at the technology that I can't find on the internet until the very end, but it's overall not too bad. How about yourself? Your own personal debt or someone else's personal debt? No comment. (laughs) (laughs) It is more rewarding when you're deleting other people's lines of code, for sure, than your own that you wrote thinking it was really good at the first first time you went around on that path. Well, so some of the bot code was written in version 3.1 of the bot framework SDK, and the current one is 4.11, so... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's changed a lot between three yeah, and four. Yeah, and so the good news is a lot of our code is being tossed in the bin and being replaced by SDK code. So that's less stuff we have to maintain. So it's it's all good. It's just, you know, sometimes it's like, oh my gosh, what's changed now? <laughs> that's good, man. So kudos to the boss for saying, hey, we're going to take a month or a, you know, a sprint, if you will, and say clean up and get everything current because uh, not every, I've been in plenty of places that don't do that. If, it, if, it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it, right? So <laughs> yeah, leave it alone. Yeah, exactly. But at some point, you've got to move forward. And, and if you want to take advantage of the new stuff, you got to update. So it's all good. Yeah, my week's been good. Um, we, we've had, I'm looking at the window right now, and there's probably half an inch of snow on people's roofs. Which doesn't mean I get a snow day because I'm working from home. <laughs> <laughs> and and also I have a four-wheel drive Jeep Wrangler. So I remember, I think it was last, well, it kind of been last year, it must have been the year before that, when it really dumped. And I was the only person that made it in the office. And I have this really cool photo of my Jeep, like is the like the empty parking <laughs> lot and just my car in there. But um, yeah, it's nowhere near like Chicago snow, I can guarantee you that much. But there are Jeep drivers who like to take advantage of it a, a few years back. Right, so every parking lot of that shopping strips, they plow it into the corner, right? They You can't get all the snow gone, so yeah, there's always two it. or three spaces that yeah. are covered with just piles of snow. And one time I remember when there was some Jeep driver who parked on the pile of snow. <laughs> I was like, well, thank you, saving the space for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> just just because he could. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah. We, we, do, we do our bit for society. <laughs> um, and so there's been a fair few announcements this week. We need to get Jeremy Kelly on to talk about this in more detail. But the um, SharePoint resource-specific consent, much like the Teams resource-specific consent, but this is for app-only or application permissions uh, flow. And it's specifically to allow you to say, this application can have access to call the graph as an application flow, but only these specific site collections or all site collections except these site collections. Um, and so that's now available on the graph. And it has been a big ask as a lot of people that build products as an ISV that um, they can't get deployed because customers push back on them because they don't want them to have access to everything. They only need them to have access to like one or two site collections in the whole tenant. And so this is really exciting that this is the first te- step for SharePoint in getting um, RSC in and they're doing it on application level, but where Jeremy Kelly is working on some of the more delegated scenarios that like Teams has already done, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, this is interesting. So having been in the SharePoint space for a long time, the journey has been interesting. And, and way back in the day, boom, you'd get a big three, three years later, you'd get a big bunch of stuff here. It's all polished. And then when the app model came out, remember, if we wanted to do 
site-specific permissions in the old app model, they gave us a web page with a box and you had to pay some XML in the box, right? It was, so it was kind of geeky, but it worked. Yeah, that's right. And now this one, that the initial release is, we don't have any UI. You have to make an API call to set it up, which I'm, I love it, right? Uh, the, to be fair, the team has said that- Yeah, it's much better. I mean, that XML was the .NET way of doing things, wasn't it? I forget what that terminology was called for restricting it. Yeah, well, it, it was copied from the, yeah, the- um, what I used to call an assembly, it looked like an assembly redirects a bit in the .NET framework. Yeah, but yeah the, that's right. It, it's the same kind of schema. Yeah, but it's all, don't take this as a criticism. I'm glad that we're getting early access and, and they have said that, well, there will be a UI around this and or PowerShell, well, PowerShell through the graph, right? So uh, um, it's coming, but it's great to see the, just over time how the SharePoint team has changed, how they're delivering things and giving us access to stuff. And if you're not ready to hack into it, then wait, it'll get better. So great to see. And, and this was actually built for a customer that has a huge enterprise development shop internally. And this was um, specifically for them saying, okay, you can build a line of business application, but if you only need access to this site collection, this is how we would limit you. And so, you know, this isn't just for ISVs. It actually was kind of pressured on them for a customer, but it's benefiting ISV at the same time because we hear this a lot. Yeah, it's, it's well, it takes us back to where we were. I have a site and or a team, you know, if you think about it in teams, it's the same concept. So great to see. And so if, if you hadn't caught up on it, just before the end of the year, we had a show with Nick Kramer to talk about the team's version of this and a lot of the same concepts apply, so certainly worth listening to Nick. And, and I think that's the highest view podcast we've had all year. Well, in a 12-month rolling yeah, yeah. year. Yeah, well, a lot of pent-up demand for that feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just shows you how much demand there was. So if you are a partner out there and you're building or even a large enterprise customer in Office 365 and you need more resource-specific consent scenarios, please reach out to me. And we're tracking it internally in a, in a, like a backlog and having true customer stories and partner stories is actually a really good way of me going speaking to the engineering group. So just reach out to me on jthake at microsoft.com and um, we'll get those things connected in. What, what else did you find out there? Well, so closing the loop on a bunch of other different things. So we had Victor Villan on last week and the actual announcement blog post from the PNP team about the Yo Teams generator V3 has been published. So if you... I'm not sure if I put it in the show notes last week because Victor said he was still working on documentation. So that's finally been published. So we don't have to go into detail on that, but uh, at least know that, that, that they pushed that out and there's docs around that as well. So you can go check that out. Yeah. And then um, the mailbag series that's being spearheaded by Brian and my team. I think Seb's done a post now. Fabian has just posted one on Blazor WebAssembly and Microsoft Graph with Azure Functions. How's that for three kind of buzzwords all in one blog post? Um, and so he's been working on that um, as part of him ramping up on some of this new tech so that we can um, help other teams to see where some of the gaps are. But it turned out this is actually pretty solid. Azure Functions has still got a bit of work to do around Graph, in my opinion. But um, the screenshots and the how-tos there are really good to like, walk through if you're wanting to get into that Blazor world. Are, are you doing anything with Blazor, Paul? Or? I, I'm not. Um Primarily because the SharePoint generator and the Teams generator doesn't give me Blazor <laughs> UI, and I don't want to bootstrap that from yeah, scratch. Yeah, right? it doesn't pump it out. Yeah, But, you know, we did have um, a Blazor show a while back. Jeremy Lickness was on, and it was about 20 episodes ago, so that's going to be half a year, and to talk about Blazor as it was rolling out. So certainly worth a listen to catch up on Blazor. And then um, I, I will point out that um, while this 
blog post is is great and has a lot of details. The in the function app, Fabian is using the traditional graph service client, create a confidential client application, and so on. And there are there is some movement on that as part of the Microsoft.identity.web uh, initiative, if you will. And so it's it's certainly worth you know gr keeping an eye on how that is because a bunch of the code. Back to my theme of code that a bunch of this code that Fabian wrote can be thrown out and replaced with SDK code once this Microsoft Identity Web stuff. Yeah, so it's certainly worth keeping an eye on that. Yeah, yeah, when that comes through. And and I will point out that keep your eye. Well, continue listening after you and I shut up because Daryl talks about some things about the identity and tokens in the Graph SDK in our show this week. So uh, lots of stuff moving there. So certainly worth keeping an eye on. And otherwise, you get a year and a half of technical debt you got to throw away. <laughs> The delete key starts getting worn out on your keyboard. Um, yeah. And what did you see from the community this week? You know, I didn't see much, Mike, because I'm kind of busy, but I did find a post from Marcus Muller, and Marcus was on the show. This, this is like a, our greatest hits almost this week, but um, Marcus has a post about using Microsoft Graph to create SharePoint items. And so, you know, as part of the, we want to use Microsoft, well, you should be using Microsoft Graph to, to call all these online services from Microsoft instead of the SharePoint endpoint. He's got a, a blog post that goes through about managed metadata fields, and lookup fields and the whole kit and caboodle that you'd expect as a SharePoint dev, including drive items and so on. So it's great to see this going through. He's got a, a nice blog post to cover how you would do that in the graph so you can throw away that CSOM code and be supported for a long, long, long time. And off we go. Yeah, it's a good post. I appreciate Marcus sharing all that. It's great. Before we jump into the show, uh, I want to say, if, wherever you're listening, if you're in a car, you're running, Juan cycling, hopefully not in the snow here in Redmond. Um, I would say if you're on a plane listening, but that's pretty unusual right now. Could be on a beach in Australia, like my brothers, rather than being in the cold in Redmond. <laughs> I'm pretty sure your phone is within reach and you have Twitter on your phone. Will you please jump on Twitter and look for the M365Dev podcast handle and just retweet one of our show entries or even post... A nice little message to me and Paul. Um, we're just interested to see how broad and wide our listener base is and that we're not talking into a, an echo chamber. I don't think we are, but it is nice to see some new faces that are joining the show. So if you're a first time listener, um, please get out your tweets and share it with your friends. And we really appreciate um, the shout outs here. And then um, I'll introduce, because again, you scheduled a 7 a.m. podcast recording. <laughs> For the second week in a row, and it's all good for you guys on the East Coast or um, over in Sweden, but not so good for me in, uh, in Redmond. Um, so this week you talked to Daryl Miller, my partner in crime over in the Graph Org, Mr. API Architect now, the Department of No. He's not the Department of No. He does lots of API reviews and passes most of them. K you mean K-N-O-W, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> um, and this week he talks about all the Graph SDK updates. So um, it's a really good show. And uh, enjoy this and we'll see you next week. So thanks for doing this one, Paul. So if you want folks to retweet our post, I guess I should remember to put some posts this week, huh? Well, I mean, it would be, yeah, that would be a nudge on you too, to make Alrighty. sure the tweets go All right, out. sounds good. All right, buddy, have a good weekend. We'll <laughs> chat next week. See you, man. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back Daryl Miller. How are you doing, Daryl? I'm doing excellent, Paul. How are you? 
I'm doing well. So it's been over a year since you've been last on. So why don't you reintroduce yourself to all our listeners? My name is Daryl Miller. I work on the Microsoft Graph Developer Experience team. Uh, I used to be the person responsible for SDKs and other developer experience stuff. And I'm slowly transitioning to more dealing with API reviews uh, on Microsoft Graph and sort of helping guide teams as to how to bring their APIs to Microsoft Graph. Excellent. And before you fully let go of the SDK, Paul dragged you back on to get some questions answered and give us a state of the state, if you will. So uh, since you're transitioning off, why don't we start there? What uh, what does that mean? Is the, the SDK team shrinking, growing, changing? What's, look, what's it looking like there? Yeah, and I, I suppose... Transitioning off isn't quite the right thing because, you know, I'll never let my grubby little fingers let go of some of those things. Uh, our, our team has grown significantly over the last year uh, in order to be both outwardly facing helping third-party developers use Microsoft Graph, but now we have the capacity resources to be able to actually also help teams bring their APIs to Graph so that we can have this fuller surface. And so my role has changed to be more focused around technical architecture things across all the developer experiences. And we just this week, uh, Kristen Womack started as our DevEx lead. We now have two PMs uh, focused just on SDKs. We have Mesa and Rowena. And so they will be doing the job of making sure we deliver things that have high quality on time. And I'll be just sticking my nose in and saying, I don't think we should do that. I think we should do it this different way. And all of those kind of things that I enjoy getting my nose into. That, that's that's great. And, and so this, the to recap, since your last visit, we, we, when we last chatted, it was right after build and the PowerShell SDK or the commandlets had, had just released. And an interesting story. I was on a I was on a, a call with uh, one of the SharePoint folks, and they were releasing some updates to the API that just were were, were posted this week. And he said, "Well, we're not going to build a, a PowerShell commandlet in the SharePoint module because it's on Graph and it just comes along for the ride." So I think that's got to be a little bit gratifying. I start and see the fruits of your labor. Yeah, it it certainly is, and it it has been a long journey, and uh, we are really now getting to that point of where we wanted to be, where we're updating very recently. I was just hearing yesterday in our meeting, we're like, okay, we're going to have the 1.3.2 version coming out, which will have updates from last week of metadata updates, and so we're really tracking towards getting that weekly release uh, of stuff for both v1 and beta so and and now actually teams who are um bringing their apis to graph they're immediately asking okay can i go try out the powershell and see how that works um so we are that baseline so that you can be kind of guaranteed that uh no matter what piece of functionality on graph there's always there's some kind of powershell accessibility to it so you don't have to worry about footsing about getting your own access token you just call it and get it yourself. We know, and this is a story that we continue to tell, they are not the most elegant of PowerShell modules. And if there's one thing that I learned, have learned over the last couple of years, PowerShell devs hold UX close to their hearts and are most offended when you put out PowerShell commandlets that don't meet the quality bar. And so 
we have teams who have these audiences that are really focused around uh, using PowerShell who are building these kind of scenario-based things that will make life easier. Uh, so the AAT, AAD team are working on stuff that layers on top of what we've built. I just had a conversation the other day with the Intune team who are working on that. Uh, we've got all kinds of good stuff that people like the SharePoint admin team were working with them. So their stuff's going to come onto Graph fairly soon. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, it's nice to have that comprehensive solution uh, plus this kind of two-tiered model of what somebody from the identity leadership he described as the plumbing and the porcelain. So we provide the plumbing and then teams who have those, you want that richer experience can build the porcelain over the top. Well, I'm not necessarily a plumber, but I do kind of like that metaphor. And that, that brings me, I know we have a list of other things to talk about, but this just spurred a thought in my head that the the CRUD operations are pretty straightforward, right? Generating a bunch of code that will issue the correct call and payload for or request body for for the CRUD operations is quite straightforward. But but sometimes there's these other operations that have to happen, like long running tasks or file upload sessions, for example. Is that was that kind of what you mean? Where the the, the, the that extra little polish or, or how things done is that kind of like the porcelain layer, or am I misinterpreting? The the long running operations and the and the other thing that you mentioned that that I'm completely blanking on at the moment are kind of cross cutting concerns. Uh, file uploads and we need to handle that in the base stuff. So like going and getting streams should just work out of the box. Uh, going and getting reports with CSV files where we are trying to clean up some of that. Dealing with functions is a bit weird on graph, and there are some edge cases that we're definitely trying to resolve there. The, the porcelain is like, take examples like um, creating an application, because it's super helpful to be able to register a new application. Uh, but the API surface area is very kind of flexible and has a bunch of these complex objects in it. For if you want to do a spa application, you provide that and you put the redirect here at URLs. If you want a web application, you fill in this other property. And so where you have a payload that has nested objects, it doesn't project all that well into a bunch of PowerShell parameters. And it's those kind of places where what we really need is a layer on top that says, I want to create this kind of application registration versus this other kind of it that will just sit on top of calling the generic new MG application commandlet and provide just a subset of those parameters in a more easily consumable format. And in a native PowerShell fashion, like the parameter sets, right? So if you're doing the type X, you need these four parameters. If you're doing type Y, you need two of those four, but these other seven, right? It makes total sense. So I'm glad to see, I'm glad that, that someone's thinking around that and trying to make that better. Now, obviously, um, this is a developer show, so PowerShell is tangentially nice, but I do know that uh, Vincent released the Java, well, actually, Vincent, Vincent worked on, and, and the Java SDK has been published recently, right? So what else is new in the language? Uh, uh, using the graph type of space besides those? 
So there is now the V3 preview of Java and Vincent has done uh, a ton of cleanup uh, in that space, a bunch of performance optimizations. And it's been a journey for him because he wasn't really in the Java space before. (laughs) Um, But no, he's, he's been doing an awesome job there. And one of the other things he's brought in there is uh, supporting the Azure Identity Libraries. And this is something that we're doing across uh, our SDKs. You may be familiar that one of the early things that we did based on feedback was, oh, this is really hard. It's really hard to do auth. Could you make auth easier? So we introduced these authentication providers uh, that basically allowed you to take an MSAL object and Amsel application, put them inside it, inside the auth provider, and then pass that on to Graph, our Graph service client. And we take care of all the nitty gritty of going and getting the token at the appropriate time and dealing with all the conditional access coop. And uh, what we discovered as time went by is over in Azure land, they were doing almost the same thing. And it just made no sense that Azure developers would have one way of wrapping the MSAL libraries and we would have a different way. And so as part of an alignment effort, which is an ongoing process to try and make it easier for people to use both Azure APIs and Graph APIs in a coherent and consistent way, uh, we've started adopting those Azure Identity Libraries. So the idea will be you get what's called a token credential class, and there's a bunch of different specialized ones. If you want a device code credential or you want a confidential client or a certificate credential, you grab one of those credential objects and you just drop it into our client and it will use that in order to go and get the uh, token as and when in our middleware pipeline. And so that's there now in the Java preview. It's going into uh, the JavaScript. It will soon be coming out in our V2 of the .NET library as well, along with a bunch of other things that's happening in .NET, including moving over to system.txt.json for 50% faster serialization and deserialization. And there's just a bunch of cleanup. We scurry away a whole bunch of stuff into additional properties that we really shouldn't. So we're going to find a better way of exposing if you want access to the headers. Uh, We're going to create a separate method so you can get access to the headers instead of burying it away or the status code instead of burying it in the additional data. And that will allow us to do a bunch of performance optimizations uh, in .NET, similar to what uh, Vincent has been able to do in Java. Just a little bit going on. That's excellent. And so the I know that we've talked about it in the past, how the most a big chunk of the SDKs are generated. Obviously, that can appeal to some folks, but not everybody. But when you are, are doing this SDK work, it, are you working on stuff that's outside the generated libraries or are you tweaking the generator itself? Well, what does that kind of look like for, you know, a little bit behind the covers, if you don't mind? I, I mean, a lot of our effort over the last couple of years has been focused on really the core stuff. The, you know, the middleware pipelines, a retry handler, like that that stuff in order to try and make uh, requests more um, reliable, plus teasing apart what we call the core versus the service library so that you have this option. If you don't want to use a service library because it's getting rather large in .NET, 
uh, especially on the beta side. And with the amount of stuff that's coming to graph, it's going to get a lot bigger. Um, and so splitting this apart has been a big deal. And a lot of our focus really has been on core. We are just kind of at the brink of changing our focus and looking at the service library and the generation process. And we've got a fair amount of legacy there. The, the code generator tool, we kind of put a pretty face on it with a tool called Typewriter a while back, but under the covers, it is um, an old tool called Viper and a bunch of T4 templates. And they are not fun. If you ever get Vincent in a room with a beer, ask him about his the joy around trying to manipulate the T4 templates for the Java generation. So every time we go and try and fix things in the way that the shape of the service libraries are generated or there's new features that get introduced, like uh, there are some teams starting to come now with what we're calling uh, OData bulk operations. So you're actually going to be able to patch a collection with a bunch of data that says, I want to add this thing and I want to remove this thing and I want to update thing in just one request. So we need to add that support to the SDKs. And today, like when we have these kind of fundamental OData changes, we've got to go into each language and uh, update all of those T4 templates and slowly roll out the changes. So we are in an investigation about looking into a different way of generating those libraries. And you have been using... Autorest as a code generator for both the PowerShell library and uh, the CLI that we're currently working on. That's great because we can leverage a ton of that generator work that was done by, by the Azure team. But one of our challenges is graph is big. And we now generate 35 different PowerShell modules because Autorest doesn't like the size of graph. So we actually have to split it down into smaller chunks. And so we need something that can handle the size. And also uh, Autorest kind of generates a, a fairly flat structure based on the list of entities. Uh, whereas our libraries generate this kind of tree structure. So you can do the uh, me.mailfolders.messages.attachments and kind of discover the whole URI space of graph. And so in order to build that same style of view of um, of API surface area, we have been investigating a, a new code generator tool that uses the open API because we found that really valuable that we have this one place where we take the CSDL and go, okay, what should the CSDL look like in terms of an HTTP API? Because CSDL is a bunch of conventions, right? Which just says, okay, I have an entity set. So you've defined yourself an entity set, then I assume you can do get put post delete on that and you can filter it and you can sort it and all those things. And so then we turn that in using OpenAPI into this specific description of here are the methods that you can do. And we have that now set of conventions encoded in one place. Then we run, we take that open API and feed it into a code generator. And this, this new project, which is tentatively codenamed Kyoda, is a new code generator that then takes that open API description with all of those operations and it builds a tree because our request builders that we create is a tree. We take that tree and then we build a code DOM out of it. Because we're in a fairly specialized kind of uh, world, we're not generating arbitrary code. We 
uh, build this code DOM that's, that says, this is kind of what we want the code to look like. This is the shape. These are the request builders. These are the models. These are the methods that need to exist on it. But the code DOM is language agnostic is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> and so then we take that code DOM and just hand it over to a writer that knows how to serial, how to create the things in a particular language. And the real benefit of this is like when it comes to adding features, we add the features in the code DOM and the writers all have to do is convert it into things that are, feel natural in that particular language. We actually have an extra little step that does um, manipulations of that code DOM in a way that are language specific because things like inner classes exist in C sharp, but they don't in Java. You can do, you know, you can't do generics in, in Go. And so th there's going to be some uh, different manipulations. We have to pull in certain usings uh, in C sharp, whereas we don't have to pull those same, you know, dependencies in, in Java. So there's a, there's a few little stages in the pipeline but we really think that this is going to increase our agility in one, introducing new languages and two, bringing new features that get exposed on graph across all of the graph surface area. That will allow us to really focus on the service library side of things, which we haven't been able to do much so far. Which is great, right? There, inevitably, we start using this thing, we run into a, a, an obstacle. Oh, this doesn't work, and I'm dropping down into raw HTTP, and everyone knows that that's always going to be the case. As you mentioned, the, the different feature teams at Microsoft have, I'm guessing they don't think of the Graph SDK in mind when they're building capabilities into their service, right? So you have to adjust. That's great. Now, um, you mentioned the CLI, which is coming soon. We, we really haven't talked much about that. Is is the What's the, the idea around that? Is it like the PowerShell, but less characters is how Paul interprets it. <laughs> what, what, is the, what is the goals and motivations around a CLI for Microsoft Graph? This has been a question that I have asked a number of times. And I generally, some people just prefer that style of interaction. Uh, there are some tools that people pull in that just don't have PowerShell support. Uh, traditionally, there wasn't PowerShell in the Linux world. And so people got used to CLIs. I mean, you can ask, why C Sharp versus Java? Because some people prefer one, why C sharp versus TypeScript, right? <laughs> exactly. Like if right? you squint, you can't really tell the difference. Like, luckily, I don't have an email address where I get hate mail for that, right? But <laughs> yeah, some folks prefer using the CLI. Uh, it, it has a different set of constraints. There is a code generator experience for it. Although I, I must admit, like, due to the size of graph, like, generating all of the stuff and trying to organize that hierarchy of commands is 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 a challenge. Uh, and we're working through it and we're trying to bring that experience where you will just be able to kind of do MG mail or MG messages create and it will go create you an email message. Um, and, and we are also working closely with the AZCLI team because since the announcement to the deprecation of AAD graph, 
there's a bunch of folks in the Azure world who were used to calling a ZCLI for stuff, uh, which is now over on Graph. So they will need to work with both sets of tools. And we're discussing like, how do we make this experience painless? And one of the things that we're really trying to get to is being able to just do a single sign-on. So you don't have to sign in to AZ and sign in to, to, to Microsoft Graph. But there's there's some there's some black magic in there that is taking some time to, to sort out. Well, I'm I'm glad you're figuring out the black magic because I do really like the fact that I can log in with my Azure CLI and then when I press F5 in my development environment, it it can figure that out using the look the token credentials that you were mentioning before. So oh well, there's just a topic that <laughs> we could really. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that's the whole magical default Azure credentials, which really doesn't work well for graph developers. Like it works wonderfully until it doesn't because that default Azure credential only can do some stuff on graph and it can't do other stuff on graph. And then you run into that, well, I want to consent to this other thing and say, oh, well, no, you can't do that. You're like, what do you mean I can't do that? No, you can only do the things the default Azure credentials allowed to do. You're not allowed to give it anything more. So, well, that credential can go to Key Vault and get a certificate for me, and then I can do what I need to after that. But I, I, granted, uh, I may I may know a little bit more about that topic than others. But th th my point is that I'm glad that someone there, some people at Microsoft, are working on that magic. And and your concept of aligning with the Azure team is is spot on. I think it's going to pay off great benefits. And then um, you've mentioned the CSDL, Open API, and a lot of acronyms and stuff like that. And, and I think that it seems to me that we're seeing a better velocity there because Jeremy's talked about that as well in the context of a change log and some documentation. So is, is, that, um, is that the same process or do teams have to go through and update the SDK CSDL one way and do the documentation a different way? Is there, is there any overlap in that that, you, that you're involved with? There is a ton of work going on to try and streamline all of those processes. Uh, and we, we get the feedback from teams who are trying to onboard to graph or like, hey, you're making me do all of this work and I want it to be just really easy. And uh, it has significantly improved. Like literally now some teams, if they want to test their stuff on graph, they create a, a branch in a repo, they put their CSDL in, they create a PR, and magically they can go to Graph Explorer and start calling their API. It's, it's, it's literally that easy. In Safara's uh, docs and SDKs, when they onboard that, that CSDL, it is that same CSDL that is being uploaded to, uh, that we then take in order to generate the SDKs. And we, we had built this process where we would uh, then go and take, you know, all the code snippets that are in the reference documentation that we generate, we would take those and test them against our SDK. And there would then be, oh, wait, there's been a little bit of a goof up here. And then we'd go back to the team and go, hey, there was a mistake made in this metadata. You need to go fix this because it breaks the thing in the SDK. And it would, would take a few weeks or a month to get everything all realigned. We're, we've actually built that process so it is dynamic now. So when a team... Uh, goes to onboard new changes to graph when before we roll out, we're going to have this process in place where it takes all that metadata, goes and regenerates all of the snippets that are based on all of the documentation. It goes and 
builds a new sets of SDKs and it glues all the pieces together and it runs all of those snippets and makes sure that everything works before we even allow that metadata to be onboarded. So I'm, I'm hoping we're going to just see a lot less situations where somebody goes to a snippet and go, hey, that snippet doesn't actually work because there are the odd one or two where we you know, there are some edge cases where, where they don't work. So I'm expecting to see the quality of all of that stuff just really come up in, in the coming year. That's very great to hear, right? Because in the past we've had, there's always, and there's always been a delay. There's some whiz-bang thing announced at an Ignite or a build, and well, how do I get to that? And it's always been crazy. And so uh, I've seen some velocity increase there, and I'm glad to – and one of the reasons to, to have you on the show to talk about this is to let folks know that the Viva stuff that is out, and it has some developer components, and we can assume that eventually it's going to end up on the graph, and so it won't be years and years like it's been in the past. So I think I appreciate all that work that you're doing in there. The last thing I, I want to mention, I don't know, I'm sure you're so busy you don't necessarily listen to the show all the time, but I know you had done a bunch of videos with the SD, the on.net group on that as well. So, um, But do you have a lot of other uh, presentations planned or is it really just heads down getting stuff working and wait till COVID passes? <laughs> I have stuff, but it's kind of side related stuff i'm i don't have enough stuff to fill my time in this particular <laughs> job so uh, we will be coming out with a new version of open api 3.1 uh, which we've been threatening for probably about six months now um, but the new version of uh, open api will be released momentarily uh, and so i have some upcoming presentations to do in in that area and I'm also involved with the, uh, a new working group in the IETF on standardizing things around HTTP APIs. So uh, I will be chairing one of the meetings uh, in March uh, on the HTTP API working group where we're standardizing all kinds of things like, you know those x-rate-limiting headers that services provide, <laughs> that different services call them slightly different things? Well, there's a proposal to standardize those rate-limiting headers. There's a proposal to standardize deprecation headers and a whole bunch of other stuff that's going through the IETF process. So anything that we can do to make building APIs easier and less ambiguous is a good thing. Excellent. And so if folks want to follow along with that, I, I know occasionally you'll post on the Twitter. So uh, <laughs> Occasionally. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but great. Thanks so much for giving us the, the peek behind the curtain today. I look forward to the updates as they come out. I have to admit, I'm not going to, I'm not going to follow the IETF standards there. I'll wait till you're all done on that one. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad to know that you work on that. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's great to have a conversation. For listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 